Assalamu alaikum. Greetings of peace. This is Safir Ahmed and I welcome you to another episode of the Renovatio podcast. Today we have two college presidents, uh, each leading a liberal arts institution, in conversation about the declining art of inculcating a love of language in students. President Thomas Hibbs of the University of Dallas quotes the philosopher Wittgenstein, who said, quote, the limits of my language define the limits of my world." Unquote. Much of the conversation touches on how nihilism in popular culture instills in young people the notion of meaninglessness in their lives. President Hamza Yusuf of Zaytuna College says, and I quote, "...the human being straddles these two abysses, the abyss of nothingness from which he came and the abyss of infinity by whom he came." Unquote. And he also says, quote, it seems that nihilism is people who are looking at the nothing and forgetting about the infinity. We think this is an important discussion and we hope you find it edifying. Let's hear it now. Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim We're very fortunate today to have somebody that I know and respect. I first came to know him at uh, Baylor University where he was the dean. Um, he's actually a, a, a very humble but a brilliant uh, philosopher. He taught uh, for several years at Boston University, a, a, a conservative Catholic college, and then later at, uh, he, he actually studied at Notre Dame. And, and now he's become the president of the Catholic uh, first-rate university uh, in Texas, Dallas University. He, uh, University of Dallas, um, and he has degrees from the University of Dallas, but also from Notre Dame. Um, he's a, a, a serious uh, scholar of ethics and philosophy. He's written some very, very interesting books. Uh, I think they're important books. Um, one of the most intriguing ones for me is uh, a book called Shows About Nothing, uh, in which he examines uh, shows about nothing on our popular television. So, but he's also done some, uh, that's actually a very interesting and deep book, but he's done some really interesting work on dialectic and narrative in Aquinas, an interpretation of the Summa Contra Gentilis, which deals with Muslims in that book also. Um, and he's written a really important book on virtue ethics. I think in, in reading uh, your, your book, uh, Shows About Nothing, uh, you you attempt to address, I, I think that rather you address very well, the crises of nihilism in popular culture. And what I want to start off, one, is by uh, looking at the problem of nihilism, uh, which is a human problem. And I'd like to quote and then ask some of your reflections on this uh, from, I don't, are you familiar with Nishitani, Meiji? Have you read anything no. by him? No, okay, he's like a Jap Jap <laughs> he, he, uh, he wrote a book called Overcoming Nihilism. It's actually really worth reading. But uh, anyway, he says, on the one hand, nihilism is a problem that transcends time and space and is rooted in the essence of human being, an existential problem in which the being of the self is revealed to the self itself as something groundless. On the other hand, it is a historical and social phenomenon, an object of the study of history. The phenomenon of nihilism shows 
that our historical life has lost its ground as objective spirit, that the value system which supports this life has broken down, and that the entirety of social and historical life has loosened itself from its foundations. Nihilism is a sign of the collapse of the social order externally and of spiritual decay internally, and as such signifies a time of great upheaval. Viewed in this way, one might say that it is a general phenomenon that occurs from time to time in the course of history. And he was writing in post-war Japan where they had uh, an immense crisis. So I, I'd like just maybe to hear from you about how this translates what I just read and what you wrote about uh, in your book in our current uh, crises. Yes, very good. Um, and, and that's a, a, a very succinct analysis. Just so everyone knows, nihilism as a term comes from a Latin word nihil, which means nothing. And it's typically taken to be a philosophy or a way of life that says that there's no ultimate purpose or meaning, no, uh, no fundamental standard to which we can appeal that enables us to distinguish between true and false, good and evil, even better or worse. And so it, it, is, uh, it can be the result of deep social, political confusion, spiritual emptiness. Obviously, it, when it's taught, particularly to young people, either as a philosophy or through the stories we tell, it can have a coarsening and indeed corrosive effect on the moral imagination of young people. And that's in part what I was worried about in the book, looking at examples from television and film. Uh, and I, I do think that we are in a time where, uh, where nihilism threatens us in lots of ways. I think our, even in our, uh, in our positive quest for justice, we've had a lot of talk since early summer after George Floyd about issues of, of racial injustice and mistreatment by the legal system, by police and by courts and so forth. A, a, and beneath that, in, in its, its deep authenticity is a great hunger for justice. But I think sometimes in our culture, when we talk about rights, when we talk about demands for justice, because we lack a consensus about what it means to be human, about what the foundations of justice are, whether they're in nature or in God, our, our discussions about these matters have an almost hysterical character to them that borders on the irrational and is always in danger of bordering on violence because we, we lack a, a sense of the foundation of purpose. And so we're always, we're always sort of threatened by nihilism, whether we're aware of it or not. The one last thing I'd say about this is the, the first part of that comment from the scholar you were reading uh, uh, is uh, that the, the sense of one's own nothingness in religious traditions, I speak here, uh, especially in the Christian religious tradition, that insight into one's nothingness is a possibility of opening up into seeing one's very existence as a gift of the Creator God. And so, the the the, the in the in the deep religion religious traditions of which we are a part, that sense of nothingness is always part of our sense of ourselves because we are not self-creators, uh, right. because we are not fully autonomous. 
uh, because we are not sufficient unto ourselves. And so that sense of my own nothingness within the ambit of a rich theology and liturgy and practice of a meaningful religious life, that's, that is actually something that we are urged to have, right? We are urged to have a sense of our own nothingness and that our dignity comes from our being created by God and from our subordinate relationship to God as creator and judge. And so right. the, when, you, when you have the experience of nothingness apart from that theological framework, the risk is always that everything falls apart, right? That then it's just bare meaninglessness. Well, it's interesting. I know you're a scholar of Pascal, and my father said that everybody should read the 72nd Ponce at least once in his life. And, uh, and, and as you're well aware, I mean, that's the one that deals with proportionality and this idea that the human being straddles these two abysses, the abyss of nothingness and uh, from, from which he came and the abyss of infinity by whom he came. And, and he argues in there that only God can know both nothing and infinity. We're incapable of that. And it seems to me that nihilism is people that are looking at the nothing and forget about the infinity. And they've, in a sense, turned their back on that. And uh, Frost has a wonderful poem about uh, the people that look out at the sea. Uh, they cannot look out far. They cannot look in deep. But wh whenever, wh whenever was that any anything that prevented them from doing it? And it seems to me that, you know, the, the, the nihilist is looking, instead of looking at the ocean of infinity, he's looking at the, the wasteland. Uh, on the shore. He's, he's looking the other way. And, and I think, um, you know, what you've pointed out in this is that our children, and, and Plato reminded us that give me the stories you tell your children and I'll give you your culture, that our children are growing up on a type of, uh, of popular culture that, that is so corrosive um, and over time I can't see how they could not fall into a type of despair, uh, that the, 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 uh, the meaninglessness of life that's presented to them constantly, uh, that, that that would be the result. And so I'm just, I'm curious how you see in terms of our institutions, these liberal arts institutions, how, how can we be better at doing what, um, I think Comte has an essay on apyracalia, and uh, uh, Leo Strauss uses that term uh, when he talks about liberal ed education, the idea that vulgarity, which our culture has become very vulgar, and, and, and vulgarity for the Greeks was a pyrocalia. It was inexperience in things beautiful. How do we restore uh, beauty to, our, to a culture that seems to have really lost it? That's a great question. The, the first thing I want to say is that one of my... Uh, favorite things about being with President Hamza is the, the way he weaves uh, long quotations from poetry into all, all that he does. I mean, there's a, there's, there is an eloquence and beauty, and that is one of the ways, right? It's by adults speaking to young people, especially in our educational institutions, uh, but more broadly 
in ways that give them an appreciation of the beauty of language, right? We're using language all the time and our language has become so coarsened that we don't experience beauty in it. They, um, the German philosopher Wittgenstein uh, has a great line, the limits of my language mark the limits of my world. And what liberal education offers to young people is an expansion of their vocabulary so they can actually not just impress people at cocktail parties and talk intelligently in meetings, but so that they can actually see the world in a richer way. You can look at something, a painting, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful building, uh, a, a great work of art, and if you don't have the vocabulary to describe what you're experiencing, you are to some extent insensitive to what you're experiencing, or at least you can't experience it on the deepest level. So giving students a vocabulary so that they can more richly perceive and understand and express their own experiences is one of the keys. It's also that vocabulary uh, and the stories and texts that we read in our curricula give students standards, give students a sense of what it would mean to pursue the truth, to pursue goodness, to pursue beauty. And at least after they've had that, they will have the grounds in everything else they're experienced for saying something's missing. Nihilism is being unable to say something's missing. There's a great line in Shakespeare's King Lear, this is not the worst so long as we can say this is the worst. The worst would be to experience something that's horrible and not even know that it's horrible. Right. Right. So to, to give our young people at a minimum the ability to know that something's missing and to be able to start to articulate what that is from the resources that we've given them through our education. The real danger in our culture is that we sense that things are a mess, but we can't really name what's missing. And without an education, especially a deeply spiritual education, you lack the resources to identify what's missing and you can even begin to lack the sense that something is missing at all. Right. And another aspect, I think, of you know, what you're talking about, about language, is because our language is, is based on the richness of its literature and its poetry, and, and there's something in, uh, in, in rhetoric, as you well know, uh, called copia, which is this idea of acquiring a fund of expression uh, through deep reading. You know, your, your argument that language is where it begins, I, th I think it is, and it's a restoration of language. But I'm just wondering, you know, how, how can we get better at this? Because for me, I think the loss of, of the ability to read uh, is is really something tragic in our culture. Uh, I know just 
for a fact in dealing with students and testing them on very difficult sentences that, that because they don't have grammar, they end up getting lost in, in, in difficult sentences and not really being able to, to see what main clauses are. And I think when you, a civilization, you know, it, the difference between a civilization and, and Islam and Christianity are founded on books. And, and, and arguably, even the pagan, the great pagan civilizations were founded on books. There is no Socrates or Plato without Homer. And, and so books are always at the root of, of, of a civilization. If we lose the ability to access books um, through the loss of language, through the impoverishment of vocabulary and these things, I don't see how we can have a rule of law, which is based on, on a deep study of language. Because... Uh, all uh, reading law is a great uh, book by Scalia, just about the importance of knowing how to read deeply, so that that, that you can ascertain what laws mean. We're, we're having a debate now about textualists and originalists uh, that try to understand what exactly does this mean, and and how do we interpret it. So I, I I'm still looking for some answers about how we because I just. Uh, Barry Sanders wrote a book that I read years ago called A is for Ox, Why Our Children Are Dying to Read. And, and John Taylor Gatto told me, the, the, uh, the great teacher from New York, um, he told me that he taught in inner cities. Uh, he taught in Harlem. And, and he said that it was so difficult to, to, when, they were, when the students were all collectively together because they postured about not wanting to, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't need this, uh, this knowledge. But he said when he got them in private, they were dying to read. They wanted literacy. And, and, and that gets back to all men by nature or human beings' desire to know. Any thoughts? Oh, yes, a, a number of thoughts. Uh, you know, I think one of the great gifts for me as a young person, when I was a student and undergraduate at the University of Dallas, uh, and and uh, had begun to take my own faith more seriously as a young adult, and to take the intellectual formation that I think I was called to, is that um, I had teachers here and and a group of students uh, when we were reading Aquinas, whom I spent most of my time reading and writing about, and and also. His, uh, his sources, not just in the ancient world, but in the Islamic and Jewish world here, uh, there was a, a turn in the group of us who were, uh, in a very friendly way, sort of competitive about who knew the most about this tradition. When it became not about who knew the most and who had the strongest argument, but who was the better reader of the text. Right. And, and, and teachers who can inspire in students a desire to be great readers. And for me, uh, Hamza, uh, it, it was a, I was not a very good student in high school, but I had two very good English teachers and we read lyric poetry very carefully line by line. And, and although I wasn't that good a student and my motivations were not at the highest level, I learned there without even being able to acknowledge it to myself that I had a brain and that it would be a good thing if I used it, and that I might enjoy it. And so giving students the, the appreciation for language, the love of learning, the joy of discovery is very important, I think. Um, 
I, I do think today that uh, that liberal education often flourishes very much at the margins because we have we have all but excluded it from many of our major institutions. But you do find in uh, lots of stories about uh, prisoners reading Dostoevsky together and and coming to a much deeper sense of purpose about their lives, coming to love the discussion of the book and how it matters to them. A few years back at, um, I think it was Mission High in San Francisco, there was a teacher there who organized for immigrants and uh, second generation uh, children of immigrants, a Dante reading group on Saturdays. And there were these great stories about how these students were, young people were transformed, not in the class, but outside of the class by the informal reading of a classic text. And it, I think the, the, uh, the, the question in a way is how do we rekindle the hunger right. that right. is natural in the human soul to right. love what is beautiful, to love, uh, to love language and to love conversation. It's partly that, uh, that we're all on these things way too much and students, young people especially are uh, but I, I do think that the soul is still moved by beauty, and we as adults have abandoned our uh, our task to introduce young people, to introduce them to lots of things, but certainly among the things we have to introduce them to is a taste for what is actually beautiful and a love of language and conversation uh, and, and a love of the face-to-face -face interaction with other human persons and, and the friendships that grow out of that. Andrew Delbenko, this great scholar at Columbia who writes a lot about higher education, has a little book called yeah. College. Uh, and that's beautiful. But one of the points he makes early on in that is that having a common curriculum in the first year or two right. makes it possible after that for every student potentially to be a friend of every other student because right. they have something in common. They have books they've read. They've had professors right. they've, uh, they've had. And so they can draw upon, if, if they don't have that, the likelihood is that you're gonna have many fewer friendships and much right. more shallow friendships. And that gets right to shows about nothing because uh, that, that Columbia program, which John Erskine started, and the reason that he started that program was the fact that he saw that the elective system, of which there was an immense amount of resistance when it was first introduced uh, at Harvard, um, that there he saw that students no longer were speaking to each other, that there were students that were specializing in this and specializing in that. And that troubled him. So he started that core uh, program. Uh, one of the problems today is that core program, which is so incredibly rich, and, and really, despite the fact that a, a, a large part of it is Western, um, it, it was informed by so many different civilizations. Um, as you know, Aquinas was reading Avicenna. He was reading Ghazali. He was reading Farabi. He was certainly reading Averroes. Ibn Rushd was a major source for him in understanding Aristotle. He disagreed with him on some things, but people forget that he, he, he saw him as, as, as certainly Albertus Magnus, his teacher, 
was a great Averroist. Yeah. And so uh, th we forget that this, this is civilization that we, we got. Uh, in fact, I think uh, Aristotle says that the reason mathematics developed in Egypt was because they gave the priests leisure time so they could actually think about things. And, and this is something that uh, I think we're, uh, our leisure time, which was meant to develop our souls and, and to refine our hearts, uh, has been reduced to shows about nothing. So I think a lot of people, uh, in the end, I, you know, I think people, uh, they, you know, they lose this immense opportunity that we have here, this short time that we tarry here. And, and the Quran's first commandment was read, iqra, to read. And I think Islam, uh, like Christianity, developed an incredible civilization of literacy. And that's why I, one of the things that Jacques Barzan in his, uh, in his book, uh, From Dawn to Decadence, he has a chapter about what he called primitivism, you know, the kind of Rousseauian fallacy uh, where people um, look at very primitive life as some kind of an ideal. And, uh, and I, I think that that to me is a great uh, tragedy because the, the life of the mind the fact that we are unique amongst uh, creation in that we do have minds and we have this ability to grapple with nothing and infinity as concepts, which is something that the God who created our imaginations gave us those imaginations uh, to be able to do that. And that's something so extraordinary. And to squander this incredible opportunity, I just, I feel for our young people because they're given relativism in schools. They're taught doctrines that this really is meaningless. And then they're told, on the other hand, about rights that they never ground in anything. And this is, leads me to my last question to you. I think you make a very powerful argument in, in uh, your book on dialectic that you know, seeking the good, uh, whether it's you know, the moral virtues, the intellectual virtues, seeking the good, requires metaphysics. And at Zaytuna, we, we do really try to give our students, you know, an introduction to metaphysics. So I'd really like you to talk about why metaphysics is so fundamental and important to the life of the mind. Yes. Yeah, so in the, in the tradition that we work out of, right, and you're right that uh, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas's great teacher, was immersed in, in the writers from your tradition. And, uh, and that uh, Aquinas could not have done his work without that training. And that was a training that saw these texts and commentaries on them as building up, not as standing between us and reality, but as building up insight and vocabulary to be able to discern and apprehend the truth about reality more fully. And in this tradition, the more fully we apprehend it, the more deeply mysterious it becomes. That's a great paradox of metaphysics as it's understood in the Arabic Islamic tradition and in, uh, in the Christian tradition, at least amongst the best practitioners in those traditions. Uh, without some sense, I mean, let me talk about this just in, in terms of our experience of 
people and our lives and then broaden out to something more substantive about metaphysics without some sense. And this is often where secular people begin to have quasi-religious thoughts and sometimes begin a quest for religion and conversion. Some sense that there are layers, mysteries, coincidences on one level, which might be providence on another, that, that there are things that I'm not apprehending, levels of depth about my relationship with other people, about my own life, about good things that I've done, about evil that I have done, without some sense of that depth perspective in our lives, our lives just become flat and meaningless and, uh, and listless, right? And without joy, without energy, without mystery. So when we have the sense that we're on a quest, as, as Walker Percy puts it in one of his books, to be on the quest is to be on to something. The sense that there's something more, right? That, that I can't quite apprehend, but it's, it's nagging at me. It's gnawing at me. It's pulling me. It's drawing me. That sense that there's something more leads ultimately to certain kinds of affirmations about reality as being deeper and richer than my immediate experience allows, but as being revealed to some extent in my immediate experience. And that's the beginning of metaphysics, the, the sense that there is a whole of which I am a part, and that my one of my tasks as a human person in this great, vast, mysterious cosmos where I find myself in a, on a tiny speck of matter called planet Earth for an infinitesimally small period of time, one of my tasks is to try and understand my place within the whole. That's right. metaphysics. That's well, the orientation of metaphysics. It's interesting that you're saying that because uh, in uh, uh, Nietzsche, who was dealing with, with the collapse of metaphysics uh, in amongst the Europeans, um, he wrote in coll uh, The Collapse of Cosmological Values, that one of the, he, he gives these three different degrees of, of nihilism or nihilism. And, and he says that the second one is a loss of, of, of a holistic view of the universe, that, that, which is exactly to the point that you're making, that this, this is where nihilism arises out of. It arises out of this loss. And in the discarded image, I mean, that's one of the things that C.S. Lewis talks about, is that the thing he envied most about the pre-moderns is they really had worked it all out and had such a holistic view uh, of, of the world and understood it within that holism. And so getting back to that, being whole again, I mean, it's interesting that healthy comes from whole. You know, the, the word, the root of that word is, is from the same uh, root that we get whole from. To be healthy is to be whole. And it seems that we're so fragmented, uh, which leads me to, to two last points, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about them. Neil Postman uh, wrote a very interesting book, in my estimation, called Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, a very prescient book, despite the fact that all the signs and symptoms were there at the time. But it, it was really about popular discourse in the age of show business. Uh, how do we overcome the reality television show about nothing that our political discourse has become, one? And the second, for all of these people that are really having a difficult time uh, in isolation 
And, and uh, what's interesting about Kierkegaard says that to the ancients, isolation was a great gift. He said, the only thing that modern people can think about doing with it is to punish people. Like you put them in prison, they go into isolation. But it was the ancients wanted to, the sunyasi wanted to go off to the mountain. The monk wanted to go off to the cell. The, the, the Muslim wanted to go into khalwa. So the Prophet ﷺ went and isolated himself in, on the Ghar Hira. Um, I know you're an expert on Pascal. You're a very humble man. But Pascal does say that the unhappiness of our species is due to the fact uh, that we're unable to sit alone with ourselves in our rooms. So some advice on the popular discourse in the age of show business, and then how can we better sit alone in our rooms? And we'll close it with that. Yeah, and, and those those are connected, right? I mean, the inability to uh, sit alone <laughs> leads to the need to be constantly on a screen. You know, uh, uh, a thought about screens and then a thought about solitude. Um, Matt Crawford, who's a wonderful uh, thinker uh, and um, uh, wrote, a, wrote a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft, and then a book on becoming an individual uh, in the, called The World Outside Your Head. And he talks about life on screens as uh, not just being about entertainment, but also giving us the illusion of a frictionless universe, right? Because if I'm always on a screen, I only have to listen to the opinions I want. I only have to watch the shows I want. I only have to look at the images I want. And I only have to see images of myself coming back to me that I approve of. And and uh, what what Crawford says is, and he uses a, a, a bit of Freud that's actually sane here, not all Freud is, but that, that in youth, we're, as children, we're dominated by the pleasure principle. I don't think that's quite right. But as adults, it's the reality principle, right? And what you have to do to move from being a child to being an adult is to learn how to navigate the reality principle, the way in which the world and other people push back on my will. Well, right. if Crawford's right, and if time on screen leads us to appreciate and long for a frictionless universe, then we're not going to grow up. We'll be perpetual adolescents, right, who will just like images that reinforce our shallow, self-approving images of ourselves and our friends. So what we need are friends, books, jobs, other things that draw us out of ourselves and enable us to learn how to navigate and respond to the way in which the world pushes back against our will and to see that that's not always just negative, right? Part of education is, is learning to overcome obstacles, to become resilient and courageous as adults. And you don't get that from uh, being amused on screens all the time. The second point is that, I mean, you're right, this, um, this moment in of the pandemic has uh, inflicted upon us isolation that's been very difficult. But it's also offered us, and we've got to think God is trying to teach us something through this pandemic, right? God is trying to get yes. our attention. And yes. I'm certain that one of the things that God is trying to say to us as he gets our attention is be still and know that I am God right? Learn how 
to be still and be empty in the presence of the fullness that is divinity. And, uh, and this time is an opportunity, especially for those of us who are believers, to renew our commitment to silence, to renew our commitment to contemplation, which leads, as one of your students said earlier, to the kind of internal reflection that enables us to think and speak and act wisely. The recovery of solitude and of a receptive disposition to nature, to other people, and to God is indispensable for us to think, speak, and act wisely. And that is the ultimate goal of liberal education. Well, beautiful to end on, President Hibbs. I, I really want to thank you on behalf of our college and all of our supporters. Just, I hope we can do this again. I really appreciate just your intelligence and your sincerity and and also just your your genuine support for our college and what we're trying to do. I think we're kindred institutions and, you know, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Renovatio, a Zaytuna College publication. Our podcasts bring writers and scholars of various backgrounds and perspectives into conversation about theology, philosophy, and today's ethical challenges. In an age of transience, we aim to explore ideas that are timeless. Please visit renovatio.zaytuna.edu.